Good morning. Welcome again to Faith Church. My name is Godwin. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. So turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And uh, in just a couple minutes here, I'm going to read verses 12 through 31. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 12. As many of you know, I'm ethnically from Sri Lanka, a little island country south of India, if you don't know. And in our culture, food is very, very important. Uh, I'm sure, of course, lots of other cultures as well. I want to brag about my mom for just a second, who's not here, but... Uh, she is an exceptional cook, and so I grew up in this context where we would host lots and lots of dinner parties, and they were very enjoyable, even as a child. And, uh, you know, all these folks would come over. We would have these large family reunions, sometimes overseas, and again, food was the central part, and there was so much of this food as well. Really, really enjoyable times, and I'm sure you've experienced this kind of food fellowship as well. You know, good food is like the social lubricant that keeps people together and even brings people there sometimes, right? You know, you see it play out at a number of levels, whether it's uh, an evening dinner with your family at the table or maybe a Super Bowl party and your team is playing, let's say, which wasn't the case this year, of course. Or maybe a large family reunion, maybe it, it was Thanksgiving or something like that, and you can think of this big meal with all of the, the fix-ins and all of the good stuff coming together. Uh, or even, you know, we can kind of ramp it up even more and think about kind of the wedding. And, you know, you've got maybe a couple hundred people coming together and families, and really two families coming together and uniting as one. These are all kind of pictures of people coming together, and often it's around food. It's interesting to me. Well, friends, did you know that God offers a meal that acts in a similar way, a meal with great significance? It's the Lord's Supper. Here at Faith Church, we celebrate it, as you know, most of you know, we celebrate every single week. And in this passage, we learn not only about the Lord's Supper, but we learn about the Lord of the Lord's Supper. So let me read our passage to you now, Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out and entered the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, Take, take it, this is my body. 
Then he took a cup after giving thanks. He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the wine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, if I had to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. I want to give you the main point of this passage in a sentence that's in your notes. If you have a bulletin, and jot this down if you're taking notes elsewhere, and, and let it serve, and these, these main points that we try to put together as pastors, let it serve you as an anchor as we're kind of walking through this passage. Here's the main point. In a sentence, you'll see it on your screen as well. Jesus is our sovereign Passover lamb struck down to save sinners. Jesus is our sovereign Passover lamb struck down to save sinners. I want to give you three descriptions of Jesus from our passage, and all kind of circle around, revolve around the Lord's Supper. We're going to spend the most of our time on the second point, okay? A little bit of time on the first, a little bit of time on the third, lots of time on that middle point. So let's get to our first description of Jesus. So you put your eyes on verses 12 through 21. We see Jesus as the sovereign Lord. Jesus as the sovereign Lord. So last week we saw the anointing of Jesus by this woman, this unnamed woman. And from that point on, there's this kind of palpable gloom that settles over the remaining days of Jesus's life. And the gloom sort of darkens as Judas secretly starts to make plans to hand Jesus over to the priests. And Jesus is heading towards his arrest, his trial, his torture, his death, and his burial. Now, friends, what you need to realize here is as we approach this passage, all of this all of the things that I just mentioned that are coming is known to Jesus. In fact, this is why he came. None, none of it was a surprise. Now, there's some scholars, even some uh, biblical scholars, that have claimed that Jesus was outmatched by his opponents, that he overplayed his hand and as a result was like a mangled doll in the merciless gears of history. What an image, right? I mean, Wow, Jesus wedged in the grinding clogs of history, his best laid plans gone awry. This is totally untrue, as you know. What we see here over and over again is that Jesus wields profound command from the very beginning of his journey as he heads to the cross. Jesus is the unmoved mover, to quote Aristotle. Now, how do we see the sovereign Lord Jesus in our story? Right off the bat, we see Jesus' pre-meditated plans for the Passover celebration. Notice his detailed instructions. So you've, you've got some kind of seemingly random chance encounters here, right? This man with a jar of water, the owner of that guy's house. And, and you've got to say these exact words, and this is going to happen. And of course, things happened exactly the way Jesus said they would. 
We see this again as the story unfolds. Jesus arrives with the 12. They are reclining at the table. At some point, Jesus says something quite astonishing. He says, only uh, uh, one of you will betray me. Now, this, of course, is a bombshell. Notice the disciples' response. Judas is there as well, and, and they're all shocked. No one is suspected. All of them, including Judas, deny it. How could it be one of us? I mean, there's no way it could be one of us. It can't be you. It could, be, could it be me? No, I don't think it could be me. Surely not I. It seems unbelievable that one could be so immersed with Jesus and yet live out such a great evil against him. But here we are. That's precisely what's about to happen. So Jesus knew, he knew in his darkest hour who was going to betray him. Jesus was no doll being crushed in the cog of history. And he didn't just know, friends. I want to point this out. He didn't just know. He planned all of this. Notice in verse 21, it's talk, it, it says, uh, it is written, right? You notice that Jesus is, is kind of, he's, he's quoting something in the past. It is written. This was a prophecy. And do you know who ultimately, in a, in a high-level regard, uh, actually wrote this prophecy? It was Jesus. So he's kind of reading something that he had written, essentially, through the, this prophet, right? And, and what was prophesied that this was all going to go down? Jesus is not fooled here, friends. In Mark chapter 14 and beyond, there are plots swirling around Jesus to arrest him, to bury him. His disciples are going to betray him, deny him, abandon him. But I want you to notice Jesus, he is not fearful. He is not desperate. He doesn't lash out. He doesn't try to outmaneuver or manipulate the situation. He doesn't hide in fear nor retreat from these dangerous plots. He walks through these events with a sort of sovereign freedom and a striking note of authority. This is his world, and that is his house. That is his guest room. No one outsmarts Jesus or overpowers Jesus or outmaneuvers Jesus, nor catches him off guard. No one takes his life from him. He will lay it down of his own accord, and he will raise it up again. Mark is telling us, I want you to notice this. Mark is telling us, don't you dare. Don't you dare think that Jesus is out of his depth. He is completely in control. Now, this story reminds us that God rules and reigns over this world, our world, with painstaking detail. He's not just generally in control over some things or most things or the best things, you know. He's meticulously in control over all things, all things. Listen to this. This is Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. And the pronoun he is referring to Jesus. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. That includes every bit of our lives, friends. And so let me just invite you, if you're a brother and sister in Christ, I want to invite you to take comfort in this. Where is Jesus right now in relation to your life? Is the wheel of your personal history in his hands? Fate will never determine the course of your life. If you follow Jesus, you will never be crushed in the gears of history, even if all hell were to assail you. He doesn't just kind of know some things that are going to come into your life like a, a good fortune teller. He plans for all of it, and he sustains you in all of it. Praise him. It's the first thing we see here. 
about Jesus. Here's the second thing we see about Jesus. We see that he is the Passover lamb. He is the Passover lamb. He's not only the sovereign Lord, he is also the Passover lamb. I want you to notice what Jesus is doing here at this meal. He is dramatically reinterpreting the Jewish Passover feast. He is instituting a radical new observance for the church. Notice Jesus uh, combines word and symbol to maximize his communication. Because in this final meal, meal that he takes with the Lord's Supper, it's the, the last Passover feast. It's the first Lord's Supper, right? In this meal, we find salvation uniquely on display. That's why he's combining word and symbol. He's trying to maximize his communication. And I want you to also notice Jesus is playing host here. The centerpiece of the Jewish Passover meal is the roast lamb. This would bring to mind the the lamb's blood applied on the doorpost during the first Passover. Daniel wonderfully read it for us uh, earlier in the service. And when the death angel would would come and and kind of look at, at, at this Egyptian land, they would pass over the, the households that had the blood of the lamb applied. They would then go off to the land of Egypt and, and destroy Egypt's firstborn. Exodus chapter 12 says this, God says, when I see the blood of the lamb, I will pass over you. What an image. When God sees the blood of the lamb applied to the doorposts and lintels, these homes in Goshen, He will pass over them. His judgment is going elsewhere. Friends, for centuries following that event, the Jews would celebrate this Passover Passover feast because the Exodus event was the salvation event of the Old Testament. Prophets constantly referred back to this event. Songs were written and sung about this event. It supersaturated the Old Testament witness. This event marked off the birth of a nation. It defined Israel. Who is Israel? They are the people God rescued from Egypt and made his own. So yeah, it made sense for the Passover to be celebrated every single year. Generation after generation, fathers and mothers would gather their families and they would teach them through word and symbol. This is what God has done. So how fitting, how fitting, right, for for Jesus to take this rich, sacred meal, which symbolized the great Exodus events, and then reconstitute it for his disciples, and then, of course, for the church. A meal which pointed to a sort of new exodus. The next day after this meal, Jesus would die on the cross as a substitute for his people, bearing God's wrath against sinners, just as that unblemished lamb functioned in Egypt. But friends, this lamb of God provided a once-for-all sacrifice. It wasn't just a new exodus, It was a better exodus. And so Jesus recasts the Passover meal and he applies it to himself. Just like the Passover meal remembered God's rescue of Israel, the Lord's Supper is to remind the church of how he has rescued us. Consider the invitation that Jesus makes here. He takes the bread and he says, take it. This is my body. We understand this to be, of course, figurative. We are not Catholics. We don't believe in transubstantiation. It's a long word I learned in, I think, high school. And that means the, the, the priest, as he prays, kind of uh, the, the, the bread magically transforms into the literal body of Christ in that moment. And so 
does the Jews. We don't believe in that. We believe that this bread symbolizes Jesus' body. He bore our sins as that body was broken on the cross. Notice Jesus then took the cup and he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, what does that mean? Well, in the Bible, covenants are made between God and his people. Now, in the uh, old covenant age, because it was kind of coming to a close, Jesus is doing something new. Because humanity became notorious covenant breakers, whether it was Adam or Israel, now there would need to be a new covenant. Jeremiah 31 speaks of this new covenant where God promises he would give them soft hearts. He would put his law in their hearts. He would forgive their sins. and, And he promised them this ongoing relationship with him. And how would God establish this covenant with a covenant-breaking people? He would send his son to die. And so Jesus' blood would ratify and seal this new covenant. His blood would guarantee that we can become beneficiaries of God's new covenant. So this is what Jesus is speaking of here in this passage. And so in light of this, I want to give you five ways to be thoughtful as you take the Lord's Supper. I'm taking this from this little book. I I forgot to bring it up here. It's by Aubrey Sequera. And uh, I think uh, Pastor Ryan's going to be handing out some copies tonight at the prayer service. So little book. It'll take you like 45, 60 minutes, depending on the speed of your reading. If you're like me, average uh, reader, it'll take you a longer time. But it's it's this little book, excellent on the Lord's Supper. I'm going to summarize some of his points here as well. So, you know, how do we keep the Lord's Supper fresh, especially because we take it every week? How do we keep it fresh? How do we keep it from becoming rote? Okay, so so here's some some ideas. Five kind of sub points here. First of all, look backwards as you take the Lord's Supper. Look backwards. That's really the big thing Jesus seems to be inviting us to do in this passage. He's making the bread and wine a sign of the new covenant. What do signs do? They, they are pointers. They aren't the point. They are pointers, right? They point to something greater. Jesus is tying the bread and wine to God's new covenant promise, kind of like we tie a ring to a wedding vow. So I could say to my wife, Jenny, uh, this ring is my promise to love and care for you and protect you and provide for you and so on. And so when you see this ring on my finger, remember my commitment to you. And that's how we can receive this meal. Jesus wants us to remember God's covenant commitment to us. So friends, listen, as you taste the bread, remember that Remember that as you're tasting the bread, as real as that bread is in your mouth, so real is the truth that the Son of God took on flesh, took up a body so that you might have eternal life. As you taste the sweetness of the juice, remember the sweetness of having your sins forgiven because Jesus poured out his blood for you. God knows. I mean, I just find this so kind that he would institute these these kind of visual reminders, right? God knows we need reminders. He knows we are uh, weak-minded and frail and forgetful, right? So he kindly gives us this meal, which retells us every single week here at Faith Church, at least, retells us the story of the gospel, a meal that helps us to remember the gospel tangibly with our senses. He's so kind in this regard, right? So Christian, as your lips touch the bread and juice later this morning, Remember, you were an enemy of God, but now you've been adopted into his family. You stood condemned in your sin, 
but now you are counted righteous. You were a slave to sin, but now you've been set free to serve God. You were dead in your sins, but you've been made alive to God. You were headed to hell. You were on the fast track. You were full steam ahead, headed to hell. But now, but now, you're a citizen of God's heavenly kingdom. So look backwards, but also look upwards. Look upwards. You know, the Lord's Supper is a time when we uniquely commune with Jesus. He is our host, as I mentioned before. So we receive something from him. And that's good news because we need personal spiritual nourishment because the Christian life is demanding, isn't it? It's stressful at times. It's difficult to follow Jesus all of our life. Just like our physical bodies need food for fuel, we need spiritual fuel as well. And so the, the Lord's Supper is designed to nourish and strengthen you spiritually. Remember that Christian salvation isn't found in a new insight or a, a new to-do list. It's found in a person. It's through our union with Christ that our hearts are empowered, our lives are empowered to live faith-filled and obedient lives. And so we're called to abide in the vine, abide in Christ, and draw sustenance from Him. So the Lord's Supper is where we taste, in more ways than one, the realization of God's promises to us. When you take the Lord's Supper in faith, you feast on Christ by faith. We're lifted up to his heavenly table where we can commune with him and draw strength from him, just like a good smoothie after a workout, you know, which it's been a while for this guy. I remember the days, you know. And what does a good smoothie do? Well, it supplies weary muscles after a grueling workout, right? Well, just like that, the Lord's Supper replenishes our faith reserves and, and replenishes and fuels our weary hearts as we're walking through this life. So the Lord's Supper invites us to look up, to see Christ, to look what Jesus has done for you, to, to look at the grace and the promises and the treasures that are yours because of him, to see Christ in that manner, to draw strength from him. So look back, look up, and then number three, look outward, look outward. So the Lord's Supper is wonderfully personal, of course it is, but it's also beautifully corporate. It's a meal of togetherness. It's not just that we commune with Christ, but we also commune with our brothers and sisters. You know, you've seen it here at Faith Church. That's why we do communion the way we do. We're trying to reflect this reality. We want you to see each other. That's important to us. You know, I've traveled a good bit over the years, uh, even back to my home country of, of Sri Lanka and other places too. And one thing that seems kind of universal is that families eat together. They come together in the evenings and they typically eat dinner together at least. And meals have a, a way of bringing busy families together. The Lord's uh, Supper functions in the same way. I think there's a tendency within modern evangelicalism to treat the ordinances, that's both baptism and the Lord's Supper, as kind of me and Jesus moments. You know what I mean? I get to get baptized, you know, and the church is there, you know, just kind of viewing what's going on, and they're kind of around, and they, some pastors dunking me. Sure, that's all happening, uh, but, but, you know, it, it's really between me and Jesus, and the Lord's Supper is also between kind of me and Jesus. The, the church doesn't have anything to do with my personal relationship with God. The Lord's Supper is then treated like a private dinner date with Jesus. But how many passages point out that when Jesus saves us, he brings us together in a family? Here's just one example. Ephesians 2 verse 19, Paul says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and here it is, 
and members of the household of God. This is why we call each other brothers and sisters. We really are brothers and sisters. He saved us out of this world and then also into a new spiritual family. This is reflected in how we do the Lord's Supper. If you want to identify members of my family, I mean, I guess you could look at my Facebook wall or, you know, check out my marriage certificate or my, my four kids, uh, you know, their, their birth certificates. Or you could just come over to my house and see who's sitting at my dinner table, right? 1 Corinthians 11 is really helpful. It's a great passage on the Lord's Supper. You can read it later, the second half of the chapter. And here was a church that, were re- that was really selfish and unloving as they partook of the Lord's Supper. They wouldn't wait for one another when they celebrated it. The rich members ate up all the food, and they kind of got there first. The poor members would show up later, and there wouldn't be any, anything to eat and anything to kind of partake of. And so Paul repeatedly spoke about how they needed to gather as a whole church before taking the Lord's Supper. He says four times the phrase, when we come together, when you come together, excuse me. So here's an example. He says, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So the Lord's Supper strengthens the notion that we are one. It reminds us of the great unity that Jesus' blood has purchased for us. There's a church in Abu Dhabi called uh, Evangelical Community Church. And uh, I've mentioned this church to you probably several times, but it's, it's got probably 50 or 60 nations represented at this church. And there's one season uh, in, in kind of the last maybe 10 years where India and Pakistan, they were on the brink of war. It's really interesting. And there's just you know, bad blood going on between these two people groups, obviously. But it was so wonderful to see that as the Lord's Supper was being served, this international church of about 1,000 people, that there were Indians and Pakistanis lining up to receive it together. Together. Friends, this is what the Lord's Supper does. It, it puts on display this kind of peace and unity that Jesus has won for us by dying on the cross. That's what we see even here at Faith Church as we come together and we're, we're seeing people of different ages, different kind of stations in life, older, younger, and so forth. But according to Ephesians chapter 2, the wall of hostility have been, has been broken down in Christ. The Lord's Supper gives us a little visual of that. So friends, yes, commune with Jesus at the Lord's Supper. I want to invite you to keep doing that. But this is also a family meal where the body of Christ is served to the body of Christ by the body of Christ. So as you take the Lord's Supper, I want to invite you to look around, look up a little bit. Thank God for his grace in their lives as much as in yours. And you're not only celebrating God's saving grace for a bunch of different individuals here at Faith Church, but celebrating that part of God's saving grace is to bring us all together, right? To one family. Thank God we have this blood-bought bond, this oneness. So look back, look up, look outward, look inward. Number four, look inward. The Lord's Supper is a meal for personal reflection. So what are we called to reflect on? I mentioned earlier the disappointing situation happening in the Corinthian church with selfishness and disunity and factions and so forth. Paul warns them in that section in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 not to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner and to instead, 
for each person to examine himself. He says this, quote, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, in other words, your relationships, eats and drinks judgment on himself. It's a really strong statement, right? Like you shouldn't just like take the Lord's Supper just kind of flippantly, you know? Like you need to examine yourself. Now, what does that mean? Let's kind of talk about this a little bit. I think it means two things. Uh, It means look inward at two levels. First, to look inwards by specifically examining your relationships. Just like the Corinthian church, we need to examine if there's any tension in our relationships with other church members. And if so, it would be best to reconcile first with them before taking the Lord's Supper, if you can do that. Remember what this meal represents, right? We've already talked about it. Not only our union with Christ, but also our union with one another. I heard a story, this is not at a church I've been a part of, uh, but I've heard a story of of uh, uh, the Lord's Supper being served at this one church, and, and the pastor's up front, and he's kind of going through, you know, just kind of the instructions regarding the Lord's Supper. And there's these two women in this church that had kind of a, a history, a, a, a three-month or four-month-long feud. And, and there was really, uh, it was kind of ripple effects in the congregation, so other people had kind of heard of it. And it wasn't openly hostile, but there's lots of cold shoulders being thrown around. And during this time, one of the women just felt the conviction of the Lord to go and and reconcile with her sister before it was being served. And so that's what she did. She went to this other woman in the back of the church, and they embraced, and they had a few words. There were tears. And then they stepped in line together and took the Lord's Supper. What a beautiful, I mean, just what a beautiful picture of what the Lord's Supper is about, right? We're not trying to ignore mess and you know, uh, sin in our lives or the, the offenses that we have against each other. We're trying to, before the cross, humbly confess, repent to the Lord and then to each other, reconcile. We are one in Christ. Let's go. So friends, what might that look like for us here at Faith Church? What might that look like for you if you've got some sort of tension in your relationship? The second way to look inwards is to examine yourself a little bit more generally with regards to really any sin, in particular, unrepentant sin. So the Lord's Supper, first of all, we just got to state this, it isn't for perfect Christians, right? Some Christians think that they may have committed some sin unknowingly and so therefore are unworthy of taking the Lord's Supper. Suffer? Uh, Supper, yes, said it right. Don't suffer, don't suffer from paralysis analysis when you take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a meal for sinners. It's not meant for achievers. This meal isn't meant for those who kind of can bring something to the Lord. It's meant to be received from the Lord. And so the prerequisite is our need. Think about people who eat food. I mean, you eat food, you recognize that you need food. That's why you go and eat food, right? Taking this meal means recognizing your need for Jesus' body and blood to save you. But on the other hand, on the other hand, don't take this meal too lightly either. Self-examination is a good thing. It can be a healthy thing, especially if done in light of the gospel. Our lives can be such a flurry of chaos and activity. So the Lord's Supper is just a great moment to kind of slow down and reflect and refocus our lives on Jesus. It provides us the opportunity to repent of our sins yet again and to receive the grace of forgiveness yet again, and to revive our faith in Jesus. So look back, look up, look out, look in. Finally, look forward. 
Put your eyes on verses 25 and 26. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So even as Jesus, I mean, this is just awesome, right? Even as Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper and he's saying, hey, I want you to do this thing and you're going to look back and look up and all this kind of stuff. He wanted his disciples to know that this meal was only a preview. It's just a foretaste of a greater meal to come. Friends, what would you say is the ultimate goal of the Christian life? Maybe there's many ways to answer that question. Here's my way, just at least right now. It's to get to the new heavens and the new earth and to be with God and his people forever in perfect fellowship. That's the goal. That's like, that's the finish line. We're trying to get there, right? And if that's the case, our lives right now should be filled with hope and longing and anticipation of the glories of that new creational reality. This is what we saw several weeks ago as we looked at Mark chapter 13. One day God is going to make all things new. He's going to give us a new heaven. He's going to give us a new earth. And on that day, Jesus, the bridegroom, will finally and forever be united to his church, his bride, which is the people of God. Listen to how Revelation 19 speaks of this. This is such beautiful imagery. And then I heard, says John the apostle, then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory because the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has been prepared. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Right, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. What a moment that's going to be. What a moment. I can't wait. There's things in our lives that happen even, even this past week. Even this past week, whether it's my own deficiencies or the deficiencies of those around me or just living in a fallen world, I'm just reminded again, yet again, this Sunday morning, how I long to be at this feast. Long for all of this to be over. So friends, here's, here's the cool thing. Every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, it is a foretaste of that great moment when it's yeah, the, the, the feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a lick of the spoon. It's meant to whet our appetites for the feast that represents the final fulfillment of all of God's saving promises to us. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming in the present not merely what Jesus has done in the past, but also what he will do in the future. We eat and we drink as we anticipate the glorious day, day when we will eat and drink with him in the final kingdom, in the heavenly kingdom. Wonderful stuff, wonderful stuff. So let me invite you to think about those five ways to consider the Lord's Supper. Now let's just quickly move through this last point, the struck down shepherd, verses 27 through 31. Let's close by briefly looking at, at how this kind of account ends. So they're probably walking actually to the Garden of Gethsemane, and in Jesus has more difficult news to share. He quotes Zechariah 13, where the shepherd will be struck in order to purify his people, which is kind of a, a fantastic prophecy to apply to Jesus. But I want you to notice this, uh, this, this interesting, at least two-directional 
cause and effect here, okay? So notice it says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's literally what happened. Jesus was struck down and then all these disciples kind of, as we'll see soon, they kind of scattered. But there's kind of a a two-directional cause and effect here because theologically we would say something different. We would say the sheep are prone to wander and therefore the shepherd must be struck down, right? So you see kind of this two-directional cause and effect that are happening here. It's interesting, Peter gets such a bad rap, doesn't he, for being the disciple who denies Jesus? And he does. But look at Jesus' words in verse 27. He says, all of you will fall away. You see that? And then after Peter insists, hey, I'm never going to deny you, uh, the, the, the narrator, Mark, says they all said the same thing. All of them. Here we see the need for this kind of special spiritual meal. Even the best of Jesus' followers are imperfect. It's not just Judas. It's all of them. It's all of us too. To me then, this all begs the question, who should take the Lord's Supper? I mean, if it's for all, then who is the all? Literally everyone? Let me try to answer that question as we come to a close here. Remember, the Lord's Supper is dining with royalty. We're seated at the table of the king himself. Who should be there? Paul says in 1 Corinthians, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat. I think that's very clear. Very clear. Paul says it's brothers and sisters of the Lord who should participate. The family of God. Real, genuine Christians. It makes sense, right? Non-Christians can't participate in this meal because they haven't trusted in what the meal represents. They're not part of the family. But what happens after someone does become a Christian? Jesus said it this way. He said, go make disciples. What does he say next? Baptizing them, right? Remember that? Go make disciples, baptizing them. That's the first thing that he says. Baptism is the initial sign of the covenant. And that makes sense, not only because Jesus commanded it first, but Biblically, logically, baptism represents someone's conversion. They're down in the water, represents their death to this old life, and then come out of the water, represents new life in Christ. That happens when someone is converted, right? So baptism, as the first sign, not only respects Jesus' great commission wishes, but it's just good theological logic. So then, what is the Lord's Supper? It's the ongoing sign. Baptism is the initial sign. Lord's Supper is the ongoing sign. Baptism is getting into the king's palace, but you need to do that first before you can sit at the king's table, right? Now, if you are a a parent or a child, I want you to give me your ears for a second. I want you to consider this. Uh, You've heard me say this before, hopefully, probably. I think the Bible's really clear. If you become a Christian, the first thing you should do is get baptized. And the second thing you should do after that, after the church recognizes you in that moment, is to participate in the Lord's Supper. Now, I know some of you have discussed this with me or, or, you know, maybe some of our elders, and you might have a different view. That's fine, and this is not like an official church position. I just want you to consider the Bible's logic. I want you to consider what the Great Commission says. That's what I'm trying to kind of give to you right now. And so my challenge to you is this. If you've got a different view on that particular point, it's okay, but can you back it up with the Bible? What sort of biblical logic would lead you to believe that the Lord's Supper is practiced first? I think it's really clear. Read Romans 6, uh, 1 through 4, and what that teaches on baptism. It's really clear that it's connected to conversion. 
So that's all I'll say about that. So if you're a parent, if you're a child, I'd love to talk to you more about that as well, but I'd encourage you to to consider that. Another thing to consider is that every Christian who takes the Lord's Supper should belong to a church. You've heard me say that before. You know, that inward spiritual change of a real Christian should then kind of manifest outwardly in different kinds of ways, including getting engaged with a local church. Now, let me just give you some practical realities here. Remember, the elders and, and myself, we are responsible as kind of the human hosts of this meal, right? We probably have visitors every week, but we don't know those visitors, do we? So it's important, follow me now, it's important that someone, somewhere, can vouch for their genuine salvation. They're going to come up and take the Lord's Supper. Does that make sense? The Lord's Supper is more than just kind of me and Jesus' time. It's also an ongoing affirmation that the church gives to those we serve. So another kind of way of looking at it, what if someone walks into our church who's been excommunicated? Oh, I don't like to talk about that, but let's just talk about it for a second. You get to listen, sorry. Uh, What if someone who walks into our church is excommunicated from another church and they walk in? And you know that word excommunication, you know what it means, right? It it means to bar someone from the Lord's Supper, in fact, excommunicate. Okay, so what, what should we do? Should we serve that excommunicated visitor? No, because that would give them false assurance, right? Yeah, it would. So we gotta be careful. Now, some of you might be thinking, gee whiz, pastor, like, Fencing the table in this manner, it feels kind of harsh, but is it really harsh? Let's say we visited a Muslim worship service at a synagogue next Friday. All of us, all together, we just we went to a, you know, a mosque up in Westchester, let's say. They might have space. Um, do you think there might be some elements of that worship service where a non-Muslim could not participate in? Yeah, like you would expect that, right? I would expect that. I don't think we'd have a problem with that, right? I think there's something actually useful to saying, hey, you're not quite in just yet, drawing a line in the sand. In fact, Jesus does that just a few chapters ago. We, we talked about this. I think Drew preached a sermon on this. Uh, Jesus told someone, you're not far from the kingdom. And part of the implication there is you're not far, but you're also not in. You're not far, but you're not in. That's useful information. I mean, Jesus just helpfully kind of draws that line in the sand. So when we present the Lord's Supper every week, and some of you may actually stay in your seats, I'm grateful for that moment of self-awareness. Hey, I'm not a Christian, at least not yet. But I'm here, I'm learning, I'm growing. That's great. My hope for you, if you're not a Christian, is that you are recognizing, even visually, that you may be not far but you're not in yet. And that in recognizing that, the gospel will become clearer to you. Your need for a Savior will become clearer to you. And my hope is then you will trust and repent in Christ. That's my invitation to you today. If you're here, not a Christian, you're a visitor, don't know you, that's my invitation to you. Amen. Let's take some time now to um, silently reflect on this passage and prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper.